You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I so remember what it is like to be a young black girl and feeling utterly invisible. I remember desperately striving for distinction and looking anywhere and everywhere for affirmations of self-worth. If I have one hope for the role that I now have and the work that I will do It is that I can so inspire the children of today. And Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman on the Supreme Court, intends to do just that, writing a memoir that she says will be a story of what it takes to rise through the ranks of the legal profession, especially as a woman of color with an unusual name. It will be entitled Lovely One, a reference to the African name Ketanji Onyika, that Jackson's parents gave her. With the book deal, Jackson becomes part of what has become a phenomenon at the court. Justice is looking to craft their own images and score a hefty payday along the way. Every justice on the Roberts Court who's written a memoir has gotten at least a million and a half dollars. Joining me now is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr, who knows a lot about what I like to call the Supreme Court Book Club. Greg, Random House is the publisher. Do we know how much Jackson's advance is? We do not. That number was not disclosed. We can make some guesses based on what other justices have received. Justice Amy Coney Barrett in 2021 reportedly secured a $2 million advance from a different imprint of Penguin Random House. But we don't know exactly what amount Justice Jackson will be getting. And Amy Coney Barrett hasn't written the book yet. She has not. And in fact, uh, there hasn't actually been a formal announcement of that. So we know even less about what that book will involve. Based on the reports, it may be less about her personal story growing up and more about her views about the role of a judge. But that is still to come out. What makes Barrett's book deal, Jackson's and Justice Sonia Sotomayor's different from justices in the past is that they got them when they were on the court for just a short time. I mean, Jackson was just sworn in about six months ago. Yeah, that's the real new development here, I think, in addition to the large sums. Justice Jackson has yet to write a majority opinion. When Justice Barrett's book news came out, she had written only two majority opinions. Justice Sotomayor had been on the court for about a year when her book was announced. So, you know, it's a far cry from, say, when 
Justice O'Connor, before she retired, wrote a book with her brother about growing up on a ranch in Arizona. That was after Justice O'Connor had been on the court for something like 20 years or so, kind of an end of career looking back. These instead are justices whose names are out there because of the confirmation fight, and they're seizing on the moment where they're the hot new thing to jump in and tell their own story and portray what they think being a judge is all about. And Justice Clarence Thomas also wrote a memoir and got a $1.5 million advance, but he'd been on the court a while. Yeah, he had been on the court for 15 years or so when he wrote that. You know, much like Sotomayor's memoir, it told of a really interesting story. Both of them, as young children, you know, had lives of poverty or, or close to poverty, and of course, are racial minorities as well. And so they, you know, really had interesting stories. That, and it was very interesting seeing how they developed into people with very, very different views of the Constitution. So Justice Gorsuch wrote a book, but it wasn't really a memoir, and he didn't get an eye-popping advance. No, it wasn't quite as much. Justice Gorsuch's dollar amount is still out of a million dollars, unlike the other justices. And it was more a book, although it contained a little bit of some personal details. It was more a book about what he sees as the proper role of a judge in the constitutional system and, you know, kind of a defense of originalism or an argument for originalism as a means of interpreting the Constitution. Now, other justices have written books. Stephen Breyer wrote, I think, four books. Tell us about some of the other justices' books. Yeah, it's not at all a new thing. As you said, Justice Breyer wrote several books. Chief Justice Rehnquist would write books about history, including he wrote a book about the impeachment trials of Justice Samuel Chase and President Andrew Johnson. And then after that book was out, Chief Justice Rehnquist ended up being the one presiding over Bill Clinton's impeachment trial in 1999. Justice William O. Douglas, before he died, wrote more than 30 books. So the the phenomenon of of justice writing books is not new. It's the, you know, justice joins the court and gets big money for writing memoirs. That is such a, a new phenomenon. We all see the dollar signs and go, wow, they're writing it for that reason. But are there other reasons they may be writing a book? Sure. You know, this is an opportunity for them to really craft their image. It is, you know, you look at the examples of Justices Thomas and Sotomayor, both of whom sort of crafted this rags to rich story about themselves and pointed out the obstacles they had overcome and the lessons they had learned from overcoming those obstacles. Again, very different lessons that each drew. But, you know, that informs what we think about them. And so for any new justice, whether they're writing about their personal life or about their judicial philosophy, this gives them whatever 300 pages to tell their story without interruption the way they want to tell it. Just by the numbers, associate justices earn $274,200 a year. Are they limited to outside income of no more than $30,000 or is that just judges? The outside income cap applies to certain things like teaching. When it comes to book royalties, there is no cap, which is why we can get these figures that are so large and why, you know, they are troubling to some legal experts just because the sheer amount relative to what they earn in their day job does kind of create some obstacle issues. Greg, you spoke to a lot of legal ethics professors for your story, and they seem to be split as far as their concerns about these huge book deals for Supreme Court justices. Charles Gay of Indiana University said, quote, From the perspective of the average American who's grinding out a living at 40 k a year, the optics of a judge who's paid $250,000 in tax dollars to do the people's business as a justice 
earning several times her salary on a side deal may be problematic. So is the point basically, it doesn't look right? And he said legal ethics experts were, were split on this issue. With Professor Gay, that is his concern, that there is a, an issue of the optics of these large dollar amounts. He says he's uneasy about it. He actually characterized this issue as you know, relatively small compared to some other ethical issues affecting the court. Another expert I spoke with, Richard Painter, who's a former White House ethics counsel, was more concerned about you know, knowing where the money is coming from, the concern that maybe interested parties might kind of buy books in bulk as a way of currying favor with justices. That said, there were a couple other experts I, I was in contact with, Amanda Frost, Stephen Gillers, who essentially said, look, I don't see this as a problem. They are allowed under the ethics laws to, to do this. If, if there's some issue involving, say, the publisher, they may have to recuse from a particular case, but there's not any sort of bar to justice doing this sort of thing. It's a small controversy, but it's at a time when this court is mired in controversy. Yeah, of course, we you know think about things like the leak of the, the draft abortion opinion. We think about things like uh, Justice Thomas's wife, Virginia, taking part in efforts to overturn the election results and him not recusing from cases. And, and yes, the court is awash in ethical controversies right now. And, you know, everything the court does right now reflects on it and has the potential to affect its standing among the public. You know, one other aspect of these books, particularly the memoirs, is that they probably contribute to this notion that justices are, are frequently becoming celebrities in their own right. We saw that with Justice Ginsburg before she passed away. There's you know, a bit of a cult of personality that surrounds some of the other justices on the court now. Certainly Justice Thomas is very much a, a hero in conservative circles. Justice Sotomayor very much has developed her own brand. Justice Jackson may be moving in that direction. I don't want to speak prematurely, but certainly she is somebody who has captured the imagination of a lot of people in the public. And a book like this that tells her story may only further that trend. Yeah, it's a far cry from the days when many people didn't even know who was on the Supreme Court. Now they're celebs. But do these book deals highlight the controversy over the justices being the only federal judges not bound by an ethical code of conduct? That is really a long-running criticism of the court that has gotten more headway recently because of all these ethical controversies. This is a case where even if that code of conduct that applies to lower court judges, even if that applied to the Supreme Court, it probably wouldn't provide any clearer statement that says you can't do something like this. But this might be the kind of thing that some folks want to look at. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Store. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The Supreme Court has refused to block New York's new handgun restrictions, leaving in place a ban on firearms in designated sensitive locations, including buses and parks. The state enacted the measure last year after the court struck down a New York law that required people to show a special need to carry a concealed handgun in public. Joining me is Eric Rubin, a professor at SMU's Dedman School of Law. Is New York's new law still very restrictive? Yeah, so New York's law is a response to the June 2022 Supreme Court ruling in Bruin, which gutted New York's old public carry law. In the Bruin case, the Supreme Court said that it was unconstitutional to restrict concealed carry permits to only those who had a heightened need for self-defense. And that had been the primary enforcement mechanism for the New York law for over a century. So as a result, many more people are eligible for a concealed carry permit now in New York compared to before the Bruin case. And so in that sense, New York's law is less restrictive than before. But at the same time, New York added other restrictions which make New York's law more restrictive in different ways. For example, before Bruin, there had been no training requirements for a concealed carry permit in New York. That was actually an outlier position. Most places required training before you could get a permit. So New York imposed a new training requirement. And Bruin also said that it was permissible to ban guns altogether in certain sensitive places. So New York took care after Bruin to identify certain places like playgrounds and bars and subways where guns would henceforth be banned. So on the whole, I think it's accurate to say that more people are eligible now as compared to before to lawfully carry a gun in public. But at the same time, they're more restricted in where they can bring their guns. Gun owners challenged the law. What was their objection to the law? So the, the plaintiffs in the Antonyuk case brought a sweeping challenge to the law shortly after the law got passed this past summer. And they alleged that virtually all of the new public carry regime was unconstitutional. That case was assigned to a a judge in Syracuse, New York, Judge Glenn Sotheby. And in the course of 10 weeks, Judge Sotheby has issued a bunch of opinions, three opinions, that have opined on the constitutionality of various provisions of New York's law and they've reached different conclusions. The basis for the challenge is that in the Bruin case, the Supreme Court said that modern restrictions have to be analogous to historical laws. The plaintiffs are saying that a lot of these restrictions in the New York law are not analogous. And tell us a little bit more about what Judge Sotheby enjoined. Judge Sotheby in his ruling um, enjoined 12 provisions um, in New York's law, and they range um, from aspects of the permit application process to some of the sensitive locations. For example, Judge Sotheby said that even though it was constitutional to ban guns at playgrounds because of the presence of children, it was likely unconstitutional to ban them at zoos because even though there are a lot of children there, some adults go without children. Um, 
And, and so one of the things that Judge Sotheby did in his opinion, which is on appeal right now, is draw unarticulated distinctions between history, historical gun laws, and their relevance to very different modern regulations. Appealing Judge Sotheby's order, that would go to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Why didn't we just have the Second Circuit ruling on it before they tried to get the Supreme Court to intervene? So that, that question goes to the procedural posture here. So what basically happened was Judge Sotheby, in his third opinion, which had halted enforcement of 12 of the provisions of New York law, didn't give New York much time to appeal. And what New York did instead was it did appeal. But at the same time, it asked the Second Circuit Court of Appeals to issue an emergency stay to maintain the status quo. So the law would remain in effect while the Second Circuit is Sotheby's opinion. And the Second Circuit granted that emergency stay. And at present, the parties are briefing the case before the Second Circuit. But the plaintiffs in the case were unsatisfied with that emergency stay. They wanted the various provisions of New York's law to be unenforced. And they appealed that emergency stay up to the Supreme Court. And so that is what the Supreme Court was deciding at this time, was whether or not to intervene with respect to this emergency stay, not necessarily with whatever the Second Circuit ultimately decides about the law. So then would you say that it's not surprising that the Supreme Court decided not to intervene? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, it would have been quite unusual at this point in the case's procedural history for the Supreme Court to have intervened. And in fact, Justices Alito and Thomas issued a statement accompanying the denial of the petition at this point, saying that the basis for the Supreme Court's denial was out of respect for the Second Circuit's procedures at this point, implying that it was just not the right time for an appeal. Alito described Sotheby's opinion as thorough and that the case presented novel and serious questions under the Constitution's First and Second Amendments. Does that hint that at least two of the justices might want to take this case after the Second Circuit rules? I think so, especially the the reference to novel and serious questions. One of the things that the Supreme Court considers as it's deciding whether or not to grant petitions to hear cases every single year is the novelty and the seriousness of the questions that are presented. So those two justices, at least, think that on that metric, this case would be a good candidate for Supreme Court consideration down the line. Um, The point about it being thorough is interesting, and it's, and, and it's tough to parse or read too much into it. The Sotheby opinion certainly was long. It was 184 pages. But at the same time, it was a very big case, and dozens of provisions and legal questions are presented by the case. And so the length alone is not a good indication about whether or not the opinion was actually well-reasoned. And up at the Second Circuit, just on Monday, New York filed a brief explaining why they think that the Sotheby opinion actually was badly reasoned. Well, it seems like this case is going to be a test case, perhaps. But with the ruling in Bruin, doesn't it make it difficult for states to know? I mean, was there enough guidance in that ruling for states to know exactly what they can and can't do? That's one of the things that lower courts are really struggling with right now. 
is that the Supreme Court in Bruin changed the way the Second Amendment cases are to be litigated and decided in the future. Um, over 1,400 opinions about the Second Amendment had been decided in the 13 years before Bruin and after the landmark opinion, District of Columbia v. Heller. Um, and in essence, the Supreme Court said that all of those opinions were decided using an inappropriate methodology. But at the same time, other than saying that lower courts are supposed to analogize to history, the Supreme Court didn't provide a whole lot of workable guidance for the lower courts. So what we're seeing right now in this case, um, as well as in others, is judges coming up with different rules and tests about how to read history and then translate it to modern times that are fundamentally different when it comes to gun violence. I, I imagine that it's going to take years for the lower courts and then ultimately the Supreme Court to try to firm up some way to implement the Bruin case in a sensible and coherent way. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Eric Rubin, a professor at SMU's Dedman School of Law. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, the FTC is proposing a ban on non-compete clauses in employment contracts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The Federal Trade Commission is proposing a ban on non-compete clauses in employment contracts that keep workers from switching jobs. It's a sweeping rule likely to affect millions of Americans. President Biden touted the rule last week at his first cabinet meeting of the year, saying that although the clauses might be necessary for certain kinds of jobs where trade secrets are involved, non-competes block millions of workers from getting better jobs with better pay. It's another thing to say you, you're working for uh, Subway and you can't walk across the street and uh, uh, go to Jimmy John's and get a 20-cent raise. What tells that all about other than keeping wages down? Joining me is David Wolf, a partner at Fagri Drinker Biddle & Reith. David, tell us a little about the proposed rule. It's a ban on non-competes, and it's very, very broad. There are uh, virtually no exceptions. The only real exception is a sale of business exception, but even that has a high threshold. It would prohibit not only new non-competes, but take out existing um, non-competes. And it applies not only to standard non-competes, you know, a, a, a provision or a paragraph that says, hey, you can't go compete with your employer, but also things that the FTC would, would say functions as a de facto non-compete. And they don't define that except to give a couple of examples. But it's essentially things that could prevent an employee or a worker, which is the term they use, from moving from one employer to another. So it's very, very broad in terms of prohibiting restrictions that, that stop people from going to another employer. So explain why the Biden administration and you know, President Biden has talked about this is so concerned about non-competes. Well, I think it's a few things. Um, historically, there have been bills in Congress, which is really where this should be if it's going to move forward. But putting that aside, there have been bills in Congress that have gotten bipartisan support, um, not this fraud, but kind of the concept of, hey, non-competes can be unfair, uh, they can restrain competition, they can have an impact on the economy, we should do something about that. So I think that makes it somewhat attractive. Uh, you know, when you read some of the commentary, the commentary discusses the fact that uh, it is anticipated or predicted to increase wages, increase movement, provide benefits to the economy and to workers. So I think that's something that's naturally nice to have. And then I, I think the third thing is, 
they talk broadly about non-competes, but really the focus of the discussion uh, to a large degree is on kind of the unfairness in certain pockets, including certain large pockets, one of which is low-wage workers. And I think they were able to come up um, with examples, and it's really not hard because they're out there, of lower-wage workers or other workers who lack bargaining power being put in a tough and really unfair position because of a non-compete. And so when you pull those out and that, that becomes kind of a lead part of the rule and the discussion around the rule, it makes for a compelling, at least, you know, kind of in the initial read, a compelling proposal. But this will apply to all workers, you know, people in corporations and high-level jobs as well as low-wage workers? That's right. That's right. They're talking about people at the highest level of jobs, C-suite type people being being brought in. Although there is a comment from the FCC saying we welcome, as you as people respond to the proposal, we welcome comments around whether executives should be included in the ban. Right now they are, but I think the FCC clearly recognizes that that's going to get some blowback, and it's a legitimate area for discussion. And they've they've said they welcome discussion in that area. Um, I'm wondering so. I think that, you know, probably no one is going to disagree as far as low-wage workers. Well, most people won't disagree. But as far as other workers, let's say in corporations, is it fair to the business who trains a worker for years, they finally get up to, you know, the point where they're doing everything the way they should be, and then they leave? Is that fair to the business? I think that's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I think there's fairness around question around that. I think there's fairness, especially with access to confidential information. I mean, training is a really good point, and traditionally, that's been one of the three bases for a non-compete: confidential information and customer relationships being the others. But I, I think there is a real fairness argument um, to companies, and I think it's also it's kind of a quid pro quo when you're taking away half of it. I mean, the quid pro quo at a senior level is we're going to give you some really confidential information. We're going to ask you to help us develop some things that are, we think, valuable in the marketplace. We're going to pay you a, a large salary and provide other benefits. And all we ask is that you don't take that information that either we've given you or we're paying you to develop and use it against us. And I think that is a, a fairness issue. But that's not really the focus of the FTC's rule and, and comments right now. Does the FTC rule exclude businesses where trade secrets are at risk? No, it doesn't. So that, what they say is there are other ways to protect those things. And what are some of the ways that they're talking about? Well, the number one uh, way is through non-disclosure agreements. What they say is, hey, we get it. You guys are concerned that your confidential information could walk out the door, but you've got NDAs and confidentiality agreements that employees uh, do and, and will in the future be able to sign, and that's an adequate protection. And I, I just don't, I personally, I think, I know a lot of employers think as well, it's just not enough. It, it doesn't work the same way as a non-compete, particularly at the highest level. This number surprised me. According to a 2022 Treasury Department report, about one in five Americans is bound by a non-compete agreement, and the figure is higher in some industries. Yeah, there are uh, industries where I think it's more prevalent. Uh, some of, you know, tech industry, I think it's more common. I mean, it's typically areas where you've got, you're relying, you're not kind of making the same thing that everyone's making, but develop, you know, perhaps delivering it better or being in a market where there's an opportunity. It's really that those jobs where you're pushing the envelope, I think, on the technology side of the development side. 
uh, and you think you've got an advantage as an employer or as a company that you can exploit uh, from an IT perspective or delivery perspective, those are the, the companies and the areas where I think you have non-competes more because there's more to lose uh, if someone walks out the door and goes to a drill competitor. You're right. Studies have found that between 35% and 45% of tech workers are bound by non-compete clauses and as many as 45% of primary care physicians. So I just want you to react to this. Sean Heather the head of international regulatory affairs and antitrust for the Chamber of Commerce called the proposal blatantly unlawful and described non-compete clauses as an important tool in fostering innovation and preserving competition. Do you think that it's unlawful? Look, I'm an employment lawyer. Uh, you know, there's two people coming out. There are the employment lawyers who react to this and say, hey, um, I can't believe we're having a non-compete ban that's so different than what we've had when they're, they're antitrust lawyers. You know, from what I'm hearing from the antitrust lawyers, I do think this is unlawful in terms of, and it reads that way. Um, it's a complete ban in an area that's been regulated by the states for years and years. Um, the justification could be debated one way or the other, but it doesn't strike me as something you just roll out a rule and, and ban in all 50 states as to virtually every worker. So, you know, my sense is, yes, that this is unlawful, um, in addition to kind of some of the practical issues with it. There are some states that ban non-competes, aren't there? Yeah, there are three that have full, full-blown full bans and non-competes. I mean, how is it working in those states? Are, are there any studies that show whether workers are, you know, making more money in those states, switching more? Yeah, I... I think there are a lot of studies, and they go both ways. I mean, I think the key to the studies is, is to look at what group and to really break out the groups. I mean, you know, in other words, to have a study that talks about non-competes across the board to all employees, I don't think is really valuable, in my opinion, just because a non-compete is inherently a case-by-case analysis and a situation-by-situation analysis. And the lump in someone making $15 an hour and working in a fast food with someone who's making half a million dollars a year and has incentive equity, incentive compensation of equity uh, to be in a seed level of a company, that's just a very, very different analysis. I don't think, you know, I, I think at the lower levels in a state like California, I think it probably works works just fine. I think it's not, I don't think, it, I think they're missing out on a tool at the higher levels that some of the other states have, or at least some of the other states allow employers to have. So what happens now? There's a comment period, and then is the rule likely to change? I think, yes. Yeah. To answer your question, yes. There's a period of comment um, of, uh, that'll go on now, uh, and it's already, you're already starting to see it um, for the next 60 days, and I think it will change. I mean, you see in the, the notice of the comment a few areas where the FTC expressly asked for feedback, one of which was around the executive, and I think this seems to me set up, assuming the legal challenges in terms of the authority of the FTC don't, don't go through or aren't successful, I think this is set up for some kind of compromise rule where um, at least the senior folks, for example, are carved out. And, and that's, there's some precedent for that. And that's, that's what happened in Washington, D.C. They passed an non-compete ban that was very, very broad and then uh, carved it back through an amendment after the business community acted. Let's say that the FTC enacts this rule after comment period. Can they be challenged in court? Yes, 
And I, I think that's what the chamber has been talking about um, in, the, in the quote you, you made. If there's a legal challenge to the rule, what would be the legal basis for the challenge? It would just be that the FCC ex- exceeded its authority in terms of, of banning non-competes by a proposed rule versus something like legislation. Do you, this is the second major rule under Lena Khan. Is the agency being much more aggressive under Biden? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. I mean, it, it's, it started with kind of no poach and, and, and agreements between employers not to hire, which was a, an area I think a lot of people expected, but this is really pushing the envelope, uh, to put it mildly. And so, yeah, I absolutely think you're seeing a more aggressive FTC under the Biden administration. In conclusion, what's your take on this non-compete ban? Uh, it's just, I think it's just too broad a brush uh, for for the issue. I think this is an important issue. Uh, it's certainly, there are certainly issues that, that around lower earners, uh, people who don't um, have a lot of bargaining uh, power. And I understand why they want to do what they want to do with that. But to say that you can't have a non-compete at a senior level at an executive level, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And to do it by rule makes even less sense. And, you know, people compare it to California, but it, it actually goes further than what the California law does, because at least in California, the sale of business exception is much broader. Here, it's a very, very narrow sale of business exception. So even in a sale of business case, you're talking about a situation which is hard to get a non-compete in a situation where, A, non-competes are common, and B, they're helpful and, I think, pro-competitive. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's David Wolf, who leads the employment litigation team at Fagri Drinker Biddle and Wreath. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.